You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. So we took a little detour outside of our sermon series we've been doing through the book of James. And James is this great letter that was written by a man named James, right? Bible's real complex like that. A lot of times, if you want to know who wrote a book, look at who, what the name is. But this man, James, one of the followers of Christ, wrote this letter. And one of the things I love about James is it's so practical. Um, it is, like, deeply practical, but I think there's some deep considerations there as well. And we're continuing through that series, and we should be finished in um, a few more weeks here. But today we're looking at James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And, and what I'm going to ask you to sometimes we have people come up here and read. I'm going to actually ask us to read this together. So if you can stand up as we read the Word of God in one voice, we're going to read from James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere." And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You can sit down. Wow, I had a great position right there to hear the word of God spoken. I love when we do songs, but that was like melody to me right now to hear you guys say the word of God together. So we're looking at this chapter, a few verses in chapter 3 here as we look at what it means to live in wisdom. And I'll just give you the big idea of what we're talking about today. This big idea is that biblical wisdom is humble submission to God resulting in grace and peace toward others. So biblical wisdom, and maybe it's a little different than what the world calls wisdom, it's humble submission to God resulting in grace and peace toward others. Let me pray as we ask the Lord to lead us in this time. Help, Lord, help us. Um, God, I, I don't know all of our experience in here, but this is kind of a crazy thing that we do where we look at this thousand-year-old text and we base our lives upon it. Lord, how, how do we do that other than the power of your spirit reminding us this is truth and points us to you? And it's not just a nice old wise book full of some nice sayings, but it's actually your word. And you speak to us. So give us hearts to receive that today. Lord, I, I ask for help for me, not just to talk well, but Lord, to um, be your conduit, whatever you need to say to your people. So help us, Lord. Thank you for your word. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're just going to chop this up little by little. Let me read again verse 13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So if you remember some previous sermons, James was addressing teachers. He's actually addressing leaders, and other people could listen in, but he was addressing leaders here. So he's asking, yo, you're a leader, but are you wise? Who among you is wise? Because just because you can communicate a lot of intelligent or articulate things, biblically, doesn't necessarily make one wise. You can sound smart, but it doesn't necessarily make you wise because the issue is not just about knowledge. Because you can be full of information. You can have read every book. 
You can know every theology text. You can be like a philosopher extraordinaire, but you can still be lacking wisdom biblically. Because what James is saying here is by his good conduct. That's how we know wisdom is present. Because genuine wisdom shows up in life practically. Wisdom is something that's not just like thought about. Wisdom is something that's actively expressed. It's not just a set of propositional statements. But it's, uh, wisdom is a very description of what your life should look like. Wisdom is it, never meant to just remain in the head. So here's maybe a, a quick way to think about it. Wisdom is not what you know, but wisdom is how you live. I, I, I give really deep, profound thoughts, right? Uh, some of you are like, man, what you learn? I could do that. But I hope you can. That's my goal. I want you to grow wise that wisdom is not what you know, but it's how you live. And why I say that is we live in a great age right now. Scholars from thousands of years ago, if they heard the access that you have the information now, like literally you can pick this thing up called a phone and you can look up like thousand year old theology texts. You can look up the church fathers. You can look up prayers. You can look up like resources. You have this all at the access of your people would look at you and say, wow, you must be like the most spiritually mature people ever. This generation must be the most godly that's ever lived upon the face of this earth. But, but I think we've got a dilemma of Christian maturity in our day. Not a dilemma of knowledge. We got people who know more than anyone did before. Um, but, but I think we got a lot of people who know a lot, but I don't know if it's lived out in their life. Because in, in the Christian tradition, maturity, wisdom is never meant to just be something you know about. Um, I want to make really clear here, I'm not an anti-intellectual. Some of you might think I am, but I'm not, at least what my desire, I'm not an anti-intellectual. But I do believe it's problematic how we conflate a greater accumulation of knowledge and information with biblical wisdom. Hopefully, wisdom is full of getting more knowledge. I would say it's kind of hard to grow in wisdom if you're not learning anything. But it's not just learning things intellectually. What does it flow out of your life? Because I'll say it this here. Some of the smartest people I know who, and I'm not going to challenge their Christian faith. I would, I'll even say they might be Christian. Some of the smartest people I know are like the most arrogant people I know as well. If you want to know how well they let people know, go on Twitter. <laughs> Spend like half an hour on Twitter, and it's like the dark zone. Stay out of there if you can. But if you do, you'll meet some incredibly brilliant people. But then you look at the fruit of some of their intercor- in, 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 like interactions. I don't know if there's like love there. I don't know if there's like certain fruit of, of like God-likeness in the way that they interact with people. Because wisdom, and James describes it here, wisdom is all about humility. If you are going to be biblically wise, you are going to be a humble person. And that's what it means by meek here, this word meek. Um, some of you, I don't know what is it is. I might be going like, the only time you've heard the word meek is like rappers in Philly, meek mill, right? Maybe that's, that's where it's, they, some of you are, what? What's a meek mill? It, don't worry about it. But we don't really use that word because it's, like it's not like an attractive word in our culture to be meek. Like you wouldn't want your, um, at your job, your, your supervisor is giving you a review, three-month review, and they say, wow, Bob, you just, you just exhibit a tremendous amount of meekness. Be like, yo, what? Does that mean I'm getting a raise or not? Because I'm kind of confused. 
like, meek doesn't sound like an attractive kind of characteristic. But we've got to understand here, we can't let the world speak into what God says is valuable. Because it says here, we want the meekness of Christ. Because meekness, as God talks about, is not passive. It's not a wimpy kind of thing. It's, it's the farthest thing from it, actually. Meekness, according to the economy of God, is very active. It's extremely intentional. Meekness, I would suggest, is fierce and strong. You want to be a Christian like beast? You be meek. Because we see it in self in, uh, um, in Paul as he writes about Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.1. It's not in the verses, but um, Paul, he says, I myself entreat you. And this is what he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Like Jesus Christ himself, who I would say is the beastliest man who ever lived on this earth, he's described as meek and gentle. And, and we got to take this to heart, people. we we got to take into heart, what does it mean to be more like Jesus? Because here, here's what I'll say. Here's a practical test. Um, some people, I don't know what it is nowadays, people love going to that Jesus who flipped over the tables. I don't know what it is about, like, that one story. People love that story nowadays. Like, because maybe it's a response to people thinking Jesus just goes around floating around hugging everyone. They're like, no, Jesus went into the temple. And he, like, made a whip. He was flipping over tables. He was kicking behinds. That's the Jesus I love. I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, that's one story. (laughs) That's one story. What I'm going to suggest, if being like Christ for you, always brings you back to that Jesus flipping tables, Jesus, you might need a more well-rounded view of the Savior. If it's always about the take no prisoners, Jesus, you know, this, this snowflake generation who like gets offended by everything and hates, you know, we need a Jesus, like monster trucks. And I'm like, what? Because, (laughs) I'm not even going to go there, right? But, the Jesus that we follow, I mean, let's make no mistake, he, do, he does flip tables in righteous anger. He did. But he also humbly gave his life for those people who he would consider his enemies, or other people might consider his enemies. That, that's what meekness is. But I would suggest that's what power is. Amen? Meek is to be powerful. So in contrast to the wisdom found in the meekness of Christ, James then points out the opposite of that wisdom, starting in verse 14. Let me read that again, a few verses. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So James here, he's not addressing so much the falseness when it comes to things like doctrine. He's, he's not talking so much about that. But he's talking about falseness of life um, that's exhibited in jealousy, selfish ambition. Which means you can be the most orthodox of your doctrine. You can have written a systematic theology text. You can be a Bible study teacher. Heck, you can be a preacher. You can be up here singing these songs. But you can be false if... if if the driving motives are jealousy and selfish ambition. And he's talking about wisdom that comes down from above. He's saying, this is the wisdom from God. And again, it might be different than what the world talks about. But jealousy, selfish ambition, it's not wisdom from God. Rather, what's it described? Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
I mean, those are all cutting descriptors, right? I mean, those are all cutting descriptors. But I think most of us, I mean, let's just be honest here. If most of us said, yo, you're earthly and you're unspiritual, you said, yeah, no one's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, a little earthly. Yeah, watch Netflix a little too much. Unspiritual, yeah, my Bible's getting kind of dusty. Yeah, earthly, unspiritual. Um, But demonic? (laughs) I mean, that seems a little over the top, right? Demonic. Why, Why demonic here? Because bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, these are actually attributes seen in Satan himself, in the devil. And, and I would encourage you, research a little bit about the roots of Satan. Some of you are like, wow, this church believes in Satan? I thought he was a pointy red... Yeah, we, we believe at God as much as we believe in Satan. He's just not a metaphor for evil. We actually believe there's a, a being called Satan, the devil. But the thing is, you have to understand, it's not like, um, like a, a myth, mythology where there were two eggs and God and Satan rose at the same time and they, were chose, they chose their path. This one was good and this one was bad and who in the end will wear the ring? Kind of, I mean, it's not that. It's always been God. God's always existed. He never got created. Satan actually used to be an, uh, an angel. And you might have heard that term, fallen angel. That's, that's biblical. And places like Isaiah 14, it's describing judgment against some ancient kings, but the, the passage is also referring to Satan himself. That way, when we read in the Bible, Satan actually used to be one of the top angels, but he fell. And the reason that he fell, he wanted to be God. He wanted the position of a deity. And he was cast out from the kingdom. And I think we should take seriously then what drove Satan to do that? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And when it says here that we should be marked um, wise in these areas, we have to be careful. Are there evidences of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition within us? And I'll just get into it a little bit here. Um, Some of the ways you can find us out you can tell a lot about yourself by looking at who you don't like. And we're not going to do that here because it gets real awkward, especially if it's someone else in this room. But think about the people you don't like. And I know some of you right now, you're like, oh, pastor, uh, I love every single person because every person is made in the very image of God. So I'm, let's just be real, okay? There are some people you don't like. There are some people, for whatever reason, they annoy the heck out of you. The way they talk about things just goes and drives you crazy. Hopefully it's not the person you're sitting next to right now. I mean, just put an arm around them if that's the case. But you can tell a lot about yourself by who you don't like. And often, let's just be real. Often we don't like the people who we feel are ahead of us in life. Especially if we think we're kind of equal to them. Sometimes we don't even know or we don't even fully understand or be able to explain, man, why don't I like them? It's insidious. I mean, it's kind of it's deep there. And, and we use things to say, ah, you know, she, he's too nice. Or, man, she's a phony. Or, man, she, she's too pretty. He's so shallow. They're too materialistic. And we're, like, really critical. But oftentimes it's people who are ahead of us. And for whatever reason, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition starts to reveal itself in our hearts. Socrates, 
he, he said this quote. It's not biblical, so I mean, take for whatever. I think it's wise, though. He said, envy is the daughter of pride, the author of murder and revenge, the begetter of secret sedition, the perpetual tormentor of virtue. Envy is the filthy slime of the soul, a venom, a poison, a quicksilver, which consumeth the flesh and dries up the bones. Wow, put that on your coffee mug. Wow. Basically, what he's saying is this, this roots of these things, this bitter jealousy, this, this selfish ambition, it's it, it often leading to much more destructive things as we see even in the scripture described today. And, and jealousy, sometimes the reason why it reveals a lot, it, it often reflects, reflects something we're not. Oftentimes our jealousy of others, it reflects something that we feel we're not or something that we feel we're incomplete in or something that we feel we're on the short end of the stick in. And what happens is we, we, we reflect this back on others. And, and what happens? That person's the problem. You're thinking, I'm a great guy. It's that person's fault. If he didn't exist, I wouldn't be struggling with these things. It's their fault, the way they are. And there are just certain folks in all of our lives who do an amazing job, whether they know it or not, of raising up the deepest insecurities we have about ourselves. They may not even know they're doing it, but we see the effect of it in our souls. And and it might not even be areas that we um, visibly don't like about ourselves, but jealousy, it can also rear its head in terms of our success, in terms of our achievements. So you might say here, I'm not jealous of anyone. I'm doing my own path. I could give a rip what anyone else does. I'm driven, but... What I'm trying to help you do is point to the deeper motivations for maybe why you're driven. Being driven is not bad. Working hard is not bad. Ambition even is not bad. But when it's kind of muddled there, sometimes it's revealing different things that are driving that. It's the selfish ambition that James writes of here. Because the world that we live in, it breeds this kind of thinking. We are in a cutthroat world. And this is why some of you are confused when you come to church. Because in church we say, you know, turn the other cheek. You know, the last shall be first. You know, the servant will be. And then you hear all these things. You're like, praise God. And then you go back to work and school. You're like, okay, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's good for like that two hours. That's not going to work. If I stop working hard, that guy's going to overtake me. There's no way to survive like this. Because we live in a society where we're pushed to succeed. Where we're taught is that the end result of what we accomplish, that's what marks us. Like, that defines who we are. Early on, we're shown even what others have achieved, right? You ever have that guy, the kid in your neighborhood that y'all hated? Like, why can't you be more like Susie? Look at the school she got into because she works hard and you're just playing your video games. You're like, I hate Susie. But we're given these, these examples of people who have succeeded, Who've, who've had ambition, and we push, or we're pushed, until we adopt that drive ourselves. And I'll say, I mean, again, it's not all black and white. Those are things I would say have made a great nation. It, it involves work. But it's also created a group of people, a society, where we judge ourselves in the cold, harsh light of what other people have accomplished, what other people have achieved even what other people have and own. And we want it. We're just getting real here, right? We want it. We'll do whatever it takes to get it. That's selfish ambition. 
or we'll live with bitter jealousy because we can't get it. And that's the dilemma here. That's the problem with these matters. I think if I'm struggling with bitter jealousy, I'm wrestling with selfish ambition, I think you're the problem. I think you're the problem. You're the problem. It's not me. You're bringing it out of me, but you're ultimately the problem. But the inherent flaw in looking at other people as the problem is they can't do anything to solve this problem for you. Because it's your heart. You want to know how we see this at work? And and this is kind of scary when we recognize it. Um, But the only way that a jealous person can feel better about herself is when the object of her jealousy fails. If you got jealousy, the only way you can really feel good about yourself is if that person, like, messes up, fails. Or that in selfish ambition, you, like, do better than them. You overtake them. And we make other people our issue. Uh, Christina Cleveland, a brilliant author, she writes about a lot of issues. She had this one quote that I thought it just struck me in the heart. She said, The unfortunate truth is that the easiest and most effective way to boost your own image is to lower someone else's. Wow. (laughs) That's like Twitter, right? (laughs) The unfortunate truth is that the easiest and most effective way to boost your own image is to lower someone else's. It's it's, it's vile. And it leads to what we see in verse 16, the resulting effect, this disorder, this vile practice. It leads to things, and this is not an exhaustive list, but it leads to things like vandalism, or murder, or maybe adultery, warfare, theft, slander. Basically, things that violate others and provoke chaos. Some of you are Hopkins students, I think. Uh, I don't know if you use this term anymore. My wife, she used to do campus ministry on Hopkins a, a while back. And she told me, she was trying to prep me to move to Baltimore and, and get involved with Hopkins. She's like, yeah, they got this thing at Johns Hopkins. Hopkins students are interesting. They got this thing where um, it's called throating. It's called throating. And what it means is that the students are so cutthroat, or they used to be, that they would go into, like, the library. And if they knew other people needed resource in the library, they would, like, rip out those pages because they were so cutthroat. It's called throating someone else. Or, like, a night before an exam, they would set off fire alarms so people couldn't sleep or study. Like, I don't think it still goes on, right? Right now, we live in such a PC culture. Everyone would get, like, thrown out of school if stuff like that happened. But it's like that, that bitter jealousy, that selfish ambition, left unchecked, it can lead to disorder, vile this effect. Because when we look at the deeper roots of, of why this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exists, James is showing us here the why. Because we see those things happening, and we see society even. Maybe we see things breaking, we see people breaking, and we can just say, that's bad, that's bad. But James is showing us here why are those things happening? Why does bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? It's a matter of being discontent. It's a matter of being discontent. It, it's struggling with those things because we're not satisfied with what God has given us in life. If we look at ourselves, we're not content with God's work in our life. I mean, and it might, it might express itself in harm towards others, or it might just stay within the space of your own head. I mean, no one might ever even know about these things, but it's there. The underpli- underlying problem is not with other people, ultimately, it's with God himself. 
and we're just too good Christians to say we're mad at God. But ultimately, that's what it is. We look at our life, we look at where we're at, we're like, yeah, God, I'm just not happy about this. School hasn't turned out the way I thought it would. I sure as heck don't look like the way I thought I would. I didn't marry the person I thought I would. God, uh, I'm doing my thing. You're not holding up your end. And it leads to a breakdown of relationship, first with God, but also with other people. That's the disorder. That's the chaos. That selfish ambition and bitter jealousy leads to. And I'll just be real with you guys, right? This is not me like telling you guys about this. I'm looking at myself. If I'm being very honest and, and knowledgeable myself, most of the conflicts I have with other people, whether I let it out of my heart or not, it's really not about the other person. I mean, they might be doing stuff that's messed up, but ultimately my problem, main problem with people is about me. It's showing me my own insecurities. It's showing the things I don't like about myself. It's showing the things I feel like a failure in. Showing me the things where I feel I've fallen short. And other people then become a reflection and a reminder of who I am not. And why we talk about it, you're like, if this is your first time here, like, man, I thought this was one of those cheery, happy churches. Man, this place stinks. You're making me feel horrible about myself. The goal is not for you to feel horrible about yourself. But what happens is, if you don't address these things in your heart now, you know what you become? You become that really grumpy person down the line who just hates life hates everyone, hates living, miserable. And y'all see him at Thanksgiving dinner, right? <laughs> like, what the heck happened to them, man? We're eating stuff in here. How can they be upset? Because this thing unchecked, it calluses your whole life. It frames how you look at people, frames how you look at life, and ultimately it frames how you look even at God. Because that's not God's plan for us. Look at what godly wisdom is in contrast in verse 17. It says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It says that the wisdom that God gives, in contrast to this uh, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's pure. It means it's holy. It's peaceable. It means that it's freed from like a fighting, quarrelsome attitude. It's gentle. It means that the wisdom from God leads to a, a thoughtful respect of other people, as God does with us. It's just simply doing to others what God does with us. It says it's open to reason. It means that you're willing to listen to other people, even if you don't agree with them. You're willing to listen. You're you're willing to learn. You want to hear all sides. You're teachable. You're full of mercy and good fruits. It means that the wisdom that comes from God, it leads us to be generous in charity towards others. It says it's impartial. It means you don't play favorites in who you treat with grace and kindness. You're impartial and it's you're sincere that you, you're a person who your words can be trusted. You're a person of integrity. When you say yes, you, may, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. And, and I think a list like this is really important because we have to be careful how we measure spiritual maturity. And I, I mentioned this in the beginning and I just want to harp on it again. Spiritual maturity is not just how we would grade out on a systematic theology exam. I'm going to suggest Satan probably would get an A-plus on a systematic theology exam. Knows more about God than probably most of us here. Doesn't mean that you're mature. But in a day like ours, in 2018 America, and I know no, not all of us are originally from this country, but you live here now, so 2018 America... How would I describe the culture? Contentious. 
tribal, divided, hate, anger, social media, evil. Why? Because we're all divided. In, in a contentious day and age like ours, I think the items listed here are a good starting point to help us discern, do I have a genuine growing relation with God and with others? That's mature. That's maturity. Do I, do I love God more? And do I love others more? How can I determine that? Does this list describe me? Does this describe who I am? Because we see the result when there's a reconciled relation with God and others. Verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Oh, this, this verse just like sat with me this week, like a stone in my stomach. Uh, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And you know, Christians, we're wacky. When we talk about countercultural, we talk about what kind of like, you know what, the world, they're putting out movies like this, so we're going to put out our version of movies, and we're going to be countercultural. You know, the world goes to these jacked up amusement parks with like little satanic ducks and stuff. So we're going to make our own version of an amusement park. We're going to be countercultural. I think that's just strange. I mean, I, I think that's just weird. But here's, I think, what truly countercultural is in now 2018 America. In a culture where people are at each other's throats, even Christians. And if someone disagrees with you, you automatically cut off fellowship. And you say, we can't discuss these things. You can't be civil to someone. It doesn't mean that you excuse their behavior. You're able to point out the evil and the frivolity of what they believe, but you you treat someone with grace. In in a culture right now where people are just more and more saying, they're not even Christians anymore. Man, I can't believe... And again, all of the reasons might be there, but in a culture like that, that we choose to be a peacemaker. In a culture, because our culture doesn't promote being a peacemaker. Our culture promotes you getting more angry. And I'm not saying there's not just cause for righteous anger. We should be the angriest of people, but in a Christ-like way. That's when you flip your tables, as Jesus was fully without sin. But we also exist to make peace where there seems to be none. We seek to be proponents of peace amongst those who just want to do violence in body or soul. People who want to call you um, an idiot for the religious, social, political beliefs you have, you choose to respond, not as a doormat. You say what you believe, but you choose to respond in grace and mercy and kindness as God does with us. As our ex-first lady said, when they go low, what? We go high. When they go low, we go high. And I'm going to leave you here. The only way that we can truly be a person of peace like that, as described in Scripture, is to know the peace found in Christ. Because if my charge for you here now is to say, okay, guys, people are jacked up. Everyone's hating each other. Twitter stinks. You go out and you love people. If you try to do it right, you're going to want to bang your head on your computer. (laughs) You're going to want to say, people stink. This world stinks. Lord, take me home. Or let me find the people I agree with. And I'm going to say that's actually not the worst place for you to be because that shows you that you still need to know the peacemaker himself, Jesus Christ. That's going to be what draws you to the Savior's love. That's going to be the one 
who reminds you that, yo, you actually don't have peace in your heart. Look how quickly you got inflamed. Look how mad you are. Look at how the opinion of some other image bearer threw you off your game. You need more the peace of Christ. Come rest in Christ. Come know Christ. Because here's what peace is ultimately for the Christian. Peace, I mean, there's a lot of definitions, but I would say peace is also being content with who you are in Christ. Peace is saying, you know what? I may not have everything in this world that I would have dreamed of. I'm not as good looking as I thought I should be. I didn't marry the person I thought I wanted to. I didn't get into the school I wish I did. I'm not succeeding professionally as I would like. That person's house is much better than mine. And maybe things are not going well, but you know that in Christ, you have all you need. As we say, right, in this world, you can have nothing, but if you have Christ, you have everything. That's what peace is. That's what contentment is. So can I ask you to stand with me? And as our music team comes up to lead us to respond here, I want to ask you to do some spiritual work here. And for the Christian, when we say we do spiritual work, I'm saying bring yourself to the Lord. Bring yourself to Christ. Let him investigate your heart. Let these words we've been talking about expose your soul, not to shame you, not to guilt you, not to make you hide into a corner, but rather to bring you freedom. For you to be able to know the Savior that knows everything about you. He knows the way that you are getting rattled. He knows the way that you choose to separate from certain people. He knows the way that you have been quarrelsome. He knows the way that you have not been peaceful in your heart. He knows the way you've been jealous of others. The ways that you've been driving yourself because of the standard that the world has said. And because of that, you're willing to do whatever it takes. Even at the expense of your health, your family, your church. You're willing to do it. As the Lord reveals these things... Don't run in shame, but let it invite you into the loving shadow of Christ. The one who knows you and tells you, I am enough for you. You want to know how it's enough? I went to this thing called a cross to give my life so I could have you. And reflect on that. Chew on that. And if you're a Christian, come back to that again. And come to this table up front. You can come up both aisles at the same time. Take a piece of the bread. Remember the broken body of Christ. And right there at the table, dip it in the cup. Remember the shed blood of Christ that makes this possible, that actually allows you to live in peace and to move in that direction. And thank Jesus. Remind yourself and remember, if you're not a Christian, can I just ask you to do good soul work as well and ask, does your life feel like a hurricane? Does it feel like there's absolutely no peace? Does it feel you are mad at everyone all the time? You're mad at life. And maybe you wouldn't voice it this way, but you're actually mad at God. Can I invite you to this God who doesn't say ignore those things, but actually let that invite you to the mercy and grace. That's simply a way to say God wants you. God wants you to the extent of his own sacrifice to Christ on a cross. Lord, help us. Help us in this place. We are people that don't just need better advice on how to live. Lord, we tried that, most of us. It doesn't lead to life. But Lord, we need to see what you've called us to live and see our inability to do that without your power, your presence, your spirit. So we come to you naked, open-handed, open-hearted, asking that you would give us more of yourself and thank you that in Christ we have the fullness of you. But Lord, many of our eyes are shaded. 
Help us to live in the fullness of what it means to be known by the Savior in all of our frailties. And Lord, we bring our jealousy to you. We bring our selfish ambition to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us and bring us to the Christ who gave up himself so that true peace could be offered in our hearts in this world. So help us, Lord. Help us. So I invite you to respond to the word. Maybe for some of you it means you just pray. Think about it. Maybe it means you come to the table. Maybe it means you sing. Whatever you do, let's respond to God's work in your life right now. If some of you want to pray, I'm sure I'll be up here. I would love to pray with you. Maybe you can pray with some people you can.